Good morning. Welcome to Incarnation. Great to be worshiping with you this morning. I want to start with some questions. Do you want more of God? Do you want all that God has for you? Do you want God to fill you with his Holy Spirit? Growing up in the Pentecostal church, these were the kinds of questions that preachers would often pose to us. And sometimes the sermon would end with some kind of invitation to come forward and be prayed on and have someone lay hands on you and they would pray that you would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Maybe you had already had some experience of being filled with the Spirit and they might ask you, hey, come forward to be refilled. Get a fresh infilling of the Spirit. It was our 10th wedding anniversary and Jana and I were wandering the streets of the colorful Spanish colonial city of Guanajuato, Mexico. And as we walk past the grand gold-colored cathedral that you see just to the right of Jana there in the streets, that beautiful cathedral completed in 1696 with all of its beautiful Baroque ornamentation, we noticed that there is some kind of service going on on the inside. And so we peeked inside to see what is happening. It is a familiar scene to us. It's a prayer meeting of sorts. There is a praise band singing. People are in, standing in pews and they are singing and praying. And there is a bishop out front and he is praying for people as they come forward. And he is laying hands on them. This is the charismatic Catholic church. It looks just like the Pentecostal church that I grew up in. The same sense of expectation, people going up the front to be prayed for, people laying hands on people and asking God to show up in power. And so Jana turns to me and asks, should we go up? What do you say? In that moment, well, I'll tell you what we did at the end of the sermon. <laughs> this morning, we're taking a break from our readings to talk about confirmation. And I don't know that I've ever done this before, at least not since I've been here, to uh, go off-road from the lectionary readings. And so you might ask, why are we doing that? It'd be a good question. Well, one reason is that our bishop, Todd Hunter, is coming on Cinco de Mayo, so he's coming on May 5th, not to celebrate Cinco de Mayo, but to celebrate confirmations. We'll probably have a Cinco de Mayo party right after the service. <laughs> and because many of us don't even know what the sacrament of confirmation is, and because our parish has never, since our founding in 2019, has ever had a confirmation service, I thought it would be actually important for us to talk, not just in some separate class somewhere, but for our whole congregation, just to kind of wrap our minds around what is this thing called confirmation that some of us know very little about. So today, 
I'm going to talk to you in four parts. The first part I want to talk to you about is belonging. And then I want to answer the question, what is confirmation? What is the biblical imagination for confirmation? And then finally, is confirmation for you? So let's talk about belonging. Today, we're having part three of our parish orientation class. And in that class, we're going to talk about three ways to belong here. And the first way is confirmation. The second way is, I'm sorry, the first way is baptism. The second way is confirmation. And the third way is parish membership. And so we're going to pull some of that class into here. So this is a good thing. Today, we're going to focus in our sermon on number two. And all three of these ways of belonging are important to us. But before I jump into confirmation, I want to ask a question that might arise for some of you as we're talking. And that question might sound something like this. It's a good question. Can you belong in our church even before you are baptized, confirmed, or sign the membership covenant? In other words, can you belong before you believe? And the answer is absolutely. I have some friends um, that we get together from time to time and they'll come over for dinner. Sometimes it's planned, sometimes it's more spontaneous. These friends know that we eat dinner every night. And I know that they always have a good bottle of wine. And so they come over and we enjoy dinner together and they know that they belong. And then sometimes after dinner, one of them will be in the kitchen doing the dishes. Because they know that they belong. And it's not a big deal just to clean up when you belong somewhere, right? And they also know that I own a pair of clippers, that I cut my own hair, and that it's not a big deal just to cut somebody's hair. And so they'll say, hey, my son needs his hair cut, and I'll just cut their son's hair. Because they know that they belong. We belong to each other. But they could belong in a deeper sense. They could actually move in with us and start helping to pay the mortgage and doing the laundry. And we could help watch each other's kids. This is actually starting to sound like a good idea. <laughs> but that would be an even deeper level of belonging and commitment. And so when you hear the invitation to belong through baptism or confirmation or parish membership, it doesn't mean that you don't already belong. You belong. You belong here. You already belong. All we're naming is that there's an even deeper way. You already belong at a deep level here. You're welcome. First day you're here. We're so happy that you're here. Let's go. All we're naming is that there's an even deeper level to belong. There's more. And that word more is a good word because it is a key word that I would associate with the word confirmation. So let's talk about what is confirmation. Now, you might know this, but there's another C word called catechism. And our church, so the Anglican Church of North America, has its own catechism. It's really great. It's called To Be a Christian, an Anglican Catechism. So... <laughs> It's, it's uh, one of the, the key kind of like the team of, of editors that edited the, the script and, and came, 
the J.I. Packer, who some of you might recognize. Uh, but there's another name you'll see in there, our very own Trip Prince. So the founding father of our church uh, is on the editorial board for this. Quite impressive. And it's actually very well done. And so what I would say is if you don't have a copy of it, you're welcome to go out and get one. I think we actually have some. This very copy in my hand could be purchased by you. And then um, you can also download, download it for free, free PDF online. You just Google it and find it. And so a good thing to do when you, you hear a word like confirmation, like what is that word? Just You can open up the catechism and just read a definition. Sometimes definitions are good, right? They can be helpful. Well, the first thing I want you to know is that confirmation is a sacrament. And so what is a sacrament? Well, answer 121. A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. God gives us the sign as a means by which we receive that grace and a tangible assurance that we do, in fact, receive it. So it's a visible sign of an invisible grace. We think about baptism, right? It is a sign of cleansing, a sign of washing. Because why? On the inside, God washes us clean from our sins. And then there's a note about how to receive the sacraments. And we're going to read that too, just because it's good. I should receive the sacraments by faith in Christ with repentance and thanksgiving. Faith in Christ is necessary to receive the grace of the sacraments. And obedience to Christ is necessary for the benefits of the sacraments to bear fruit in my life. So now we know what a sacrament is. Let's find out what the sacrament of confirmation is. And to that, we can turn to 137. What is confirmation? Confirmation is the laying on of the bishop's hands with prayer for strengthening by the Holy Spirit. Following a period of catechal formation and confirmation, I make a mature confession of faith, publicly renewing the vows and promises made at my baptism. And then 138, what grace does God give you in confirmation? In confirmation, I am further empowered and gifted by the Holy Spirit for daily growth in wisdom, courage, and humility before God in every aspect of my life and work. So a lot of us will know the Spanish word con means with, and then firme is from the Latin strengthen. So with strengthening, it's the bishop laying hands on you and praying that the Holy Spirit would strengthen you. It's not the start of the work. The Holy Spirit's already working in your life. It's just praying for a further gift of the Spirit and a further outpouring of the Spirit in your life. And what's great about the confirmation, I mean, what's great about the catechism, it's got Bible verses for, for each and every one, so you can go look those up. And one of the verses that it cites, I think is helpful, 2 Timothy 1, 6 through 7. It says, for this reason, Paul's writing to Timothy, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. So what actually happens in confirmation? Like literally, what does it look like? Well, on May the 5th, our Bishop Todd will put a chair out for him here. Bishops always have a chair. Did you know that? In fact, the word cathedral is called cathedral because the cathedra is the seat that the bishop sits in. And so we'll have a chair, the fanciest chair we have around here. Probably that one. And uh, we'll stick it out for him. And then the confirmands will come and they will kneel before the bishop. 
And then the bishop will lay hands on the confirmant and pray a prayer that sounds something like this. Strengthen, O Lord, with your Holy Spirit, your servant, Susan. Empower her for your service. Sustain her all the days of her life. And that's what it is. That's what happens. That's the picture of it. So I want us to look for a second and ask ourselves the question, what is the biblical imagination for confirmation? Now, what I want to name to you is I don't, I don't feel any need to be up here into proof text you things, right? So I'm not up here trying to prove confirmation. I'm just trying to say the church has had this practice for centuries. And if we look in the Bible, is there any stories in there that are going to fund an imagination for this practice of someone like a bishop showing up and laying hands on you? So let's talk about that. The first scene, if you notice, we went back in the gospel to the baptism of our Lord, which we just celebrated like four weeks ago, right? And so a lot of us are already familiar with this scene. Of course, Jesus uh, comes from, from Nazareth and is baptized by uh, John in the Jordan. And as he's baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on him uh, in the form of a dove. He's baptized in water. The Holy Spirit comes on upon him. And then from there, he goes into his ministry and the power of the Spirit. And we actually see this not only as the baptism of Jesus, but as a New Testament pattern that happens again and again for believers. They're baptized, they receive the Spirit, and they go out in the power of the Spirit. And so this key takeaway is that the sacrament of baptism and the reception of Spirit in the early church is, is expected, uh, is, uh, is closely tied. And in the early church, it is expected that those who are baptized would receive the Spirit. Paul uh, writes to uh, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. He says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into the one Lord. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of the one spirit. So in the New Testament imagination, there's no one that has a spirit that hasn't been baptized. No one that has been baptized that doesn't have a spirit. It's just understood that if you got the one, you got the other. They go together. On the day of Pentecost, uh, the Holy Spirit has just come upon the church, right? They're speaking in, in other languages. And Peter gets up there to explain to the people what's happening. So he preaches this great sermon. And they say, hey, well, what do we have to do, right? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins will be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? So Peter just says, hey, this is for you. You can have it too. All you need to do is believe, repent, get baptized, and you're gonna receive the Spirit, there's another time in Acts 10 where G, uh, Peter goes to this guy named Cornelius, who is a Gentile, by the way. Gentiles haven't entered into the church yet, so this is like new territory. And Peter had this dream, and you know, and this guy, well, Cornelius had a vision. And so uh, Peter comes and uh, preaches to them. And as Peter is preaching to this group of Gentiles, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And suddenly they're speaking in tongues and Peter's like, hey, what's going on? I wasn't ready for this. And then it says, the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, well, can anyone withhold the water for baptizing? These people have received the Holy, uh, these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have in other words, for, for there's no imagination that you could prevent them from coming in. Like once they have the spirit, of course, 
Baptism just goes along because these two go together in the New Testament imagination. So this first idea, I just wanted to name that people who receive baptism in water should also expect to receive and experience the gift of the Spirit. And then I want to shift back to the story that Deacon Daryl read today. Well, no, not Deacon Daryl. Who was it? Ed. Ed Bedard read today in Acts 8. Thank you. <laughs> Stephanie's like, this guy. And this is what we, what we read today in that epistle. Now those who were scattered went from place to place. So the church is getting persecuted in Jerusalem. They think, oh man, this is such bad news. Now we gotta leave. Now we're scattered, right? And so these Jewish believers are, get scattered and they're in a town called Samaria. And there's a Philip there, not the apostle, but a deacon. So the deacon Philip goes to, down to Samaria, which is actually north of there, but it's down, as in it's closer to the coast, and proclaimed the Messiah to them. And so the crowds listen eagerly to see what Philip is saying, and they see that God is working miracles through him, and then they embrace his message, and it says that... Uh, they see the signs he did. For unclean spirits, crying loud shrieks came out of many were who possessed, and many others who were paralyzed or lame were cured. And then this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. And so there was great joy in that city. Friends, this is the result of Holy Spirit ministry. God bringing joy to a city through the ministry of Philip. There's great joy when evil is cast out. There's great joy when people are set free and are healed in the name of Jesus. And then verse 12, but when Philip, but when they believed Philip who was proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. And then verse 14, and now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John down to them. So get it, this is what happened. Jesus was the guy, right? These people are following Jesus, and then Jesus is about to go, Jesus picked out some followers called the apostles, and these are the ones that he set apart specifically to lead the church after he goes up to heaven, right? So Jesus went up to heaven, Holy Spirit came down, and so it's the apostles that are leading the church. They're the ones that are running this thing, and, and you might say that it's the spirit that is working through them to establish the church. And now, somehow the church is breaking out in Samaria apart from the apostles. So it's like, oh gosh, we gotta get some apostles up there to go, uh, to go see what's going on. And so that's what happens. They send Peter and John to them. And so the two went down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet the Spirit had not come upon any of them. They had only been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit showed up once the apostles came and laid hands. In a seminary class, I remember one of my professors saying something like, well, we call this book the Acts of the Apostles, but maybe it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because really what the book does is track the movement of the Holy Spirit from, from Jerusalem onto the ends of the earth. And there is something very true about that point, right? It is really all about what the Spirit is doing. 
But to suggest a title change might actually be to miss the point. Because in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit doesn't go anywhere that the apostles are not going. In other words, it's when the apostles come and lay hands on people that the Spirit shows up, or when the apostles come and begin preaching. Don't get me wrong. It is not that the apostles own the Spirit. Quite the opposite, right? It's the Spirit that is owning them. But the Spirit of Christ chooses to establish the church through the apostles that Christ chose. When we say we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, the book of Acts is our foundation for this statement. There is only one church, the one that was founded by the apostles in the power of the one spirit. It's true. The message gets out ahead of the apostles, right? These believers go out and they bring the message out ahead of them. But what we might call the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the signs that accompany people receiving the Spirit in this very profound way, doesn't happen in the book of Acts until the apostles arrive on the scene. We see a similar episode in Acts 19. There's a group of disciples in Ephesus. And Paul comes to them, also an apostle, and says, hey, uh, I see you guys are baptized, but have you received the Holy Spirit yet? And they say, well, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And so Paul begins to explain to them uh, how this works. He says, well, into what were you baptized? They said, well, we received John's baptism. And Paul says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, calling the people to believe in the one that was to come after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the laying on of hands, the Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Altogether, there were about 12 of them. Again, we see the connection between the laying on of hands by the apostles and the reception of the Holy Spirit. So in summary, in Acts, whenever the apostles baptize people, it is accompanied by the reception of the Holy Spirit, usually with some signs. And at times, when the apostles are not present, People believe in Jesus and are even baptized, but they have to wait until the apostles come before receiving the gift of the Spirit. And so there are some ways in which these stories can help fund an imagination for what happens in confirmation. One, the reception of the Spirit connected with the laying on of hands by the apostles, the reception. And then two, that baptism and Spirit uh, reception are meant to come together The one expects the other. However, in Acts, we see instances of what I would call subsequence. Another, the one happening and then having to wait until later before the spirit comes. So spirit empowerment coming separate from the experience of baptism. So how does this connect with confirmation? Well, here's the imagination for confirmation. One that the apostles were sent out by Christ in the power of the Spirit. So apostle means sent one, right? And then we believe that those apostles then laid hands on on other people that would then oversee the church uh, in the places where they were establishing the church. And the word overseer in Greek is episkopos, which is the word we get bishop from. So they 
laid hands on bishops and set up these overseers. And then these bishops, of course, then laid hands on other bishops, making more bishops. Thus, the bishops in the church today, we see in some sense as successors of the apostles. Now, there's this doctrine in the church called apostolic succession, where they believe, no, just like I just kind of named, bishops laid hands on the, I'm sorry, apostles laid hands on the bishops, and the bishops then, you know, laid hands on the bishops that followed them. And you don't have to go too far with that doctrine just to just this make sense, right? Like, I'm, I'm pastor in this church, and then we're going to lay hands on another pastor, and they're going to follow in, in my wake, right? And so we see this kind of line of hands being laid on, and these people, these bishops, in some sense, uh, representing the apostles. So then three, we encourage people who have been baptized to also have the bishop lay hands on them and to pray that they be strengthened in the power of the Spirit. So you guys get, I, what I'm not trying to say is that we see this formula in Acts and we're living out that formula. What we're trying to say is we've had this practice of confirmation in the church of bishops coming, laying hands, praying that the Spirit would strengthen this person who has already received baptism. And we see instances of similar things in the book of Acts of these apostles uh, doing the same thing. So part four, is confirmation for you. I want to give you three reasons to be confirmed. One is you want to affirm the faith you were baptized into as a child. So if you were baptized as a small child or a baby, confirmation is for you a chance to own your faith, to make a mature profession of faith, to affirm the faith that was professed at your baptism by your God, godparents and parents. This is what we said to your parents at your baptismal liturgy. So we say this in the liturgy. We say to the parents, hey, it's your task to see that these children are taught as soon as they are able to learn the meaning of all these vows and of the faith that you will profess as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. They must come to put their trust in Jesus, to learn the creeds, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and all other things which Christians ought to know, believe, and do for the welfare of their souls. And when they have embraced all these, having become a disciple of Jesus, they are to come to the bishop to be confirmed, that they may claim the faith for their own and be further strengthened by the Holy Spirit to serve Christ and his church. And so if you were baptized as a baby, this is your moment. This is your moment to own it, to say, I'm not just the child of a Christian parent, but I am a disciple of Christ. I've learned some stuff about the faith, and I want to make a public declaration. I want, I want my church to know and stand before them and say, this faith is my faith. I've learned it and I own it. And I want to be strengthened. And I want the bishop to lay hands on me. And I want to receive more of the spirit. I love the end that I may be further strengthened by the Holy Spirit to serve Christ and his kingdom. Notice the reception of the spirit is not just an end in itself. It's the spirit that is involved in missionary activity. Receiving the spirit means becoming an agent of the spirit's mission. Number two, you want to belong to the Anglican church. Maybe you didn't know this, but attending our Anglican church does not make you an Anglican. It's actually confirmation that makes you officially Anglican. You may be thinking here this morning, do we really need the label? Well, 
It's not about the label. It's more like a mature Christian being able to say, whatever the Holy Spirit is doing through this family, through this bishop, through this diocese, through this parish, Church of the Incarnation, I want to bring myself in alignment. Anglicans have a certain rule of faith, a committed way of reading the Bible and receiving the Eucharist and carrying out the discipline of the church. And so confirmation can be for you a way of saying, yes, I want to follow Christ in this way. Confirmation is a committed way of saying yes. It's not saying that this church is the only church but just that you are taking ownership in this church and recognizing this church has ownership for you. I think about just the actual visual, and if you pay close attention, for instance, what happens in, in uh, baptism or in the Eucharist, because the, the visual actually helps us to like, know what's going on, right? And so when I come and I kneel uh, before a bishop, there is some kind of sign of submission here, right? And so if I'm kneeling before the bishop, it's as if I'm saying, God, I recognize that you give gifts and you give leadership to the church, and so I am somehow submitting myself to this leadership that you have given us as a gift, and so I'm bringing myself uh, in a spirit of humility in alignment with all what you're doing, right? It's kind of an intense thing. When, when we get ordained, Jan and I would have both had this, I wasn't there at Daryl's ordination, but we actually don't kneel. We lay face down like this in front of the bishop. It's a radical sign of submission. And it's a way of just saying, like, I belong to this thing in a very, a very powerful way. Number three. You Americans maybe not, never wanted to belong to something in that way. <laughs> I know there's a lot of Amer America to get out of us. We're working on it. <laughs> it's not a symbol of freedom and right choice. It's a freedom of submission. But it turns out in the church, there's actually great power in, in humble submission to what God is up to and recognizing, I am not, I am not the Lord of my life. Like Jesus is my Lord, and he's, he's given us leadership, and I submit myself to that leader. It's a wild thing. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a Bible thing, I believe. Number three. You want all that God has for you. You want more of the spirit in your life. What happened at the cathedral in Guanajuato? Did we go up for prayer? Of course we did. We've been doing it all our lives. If a pastor came to town, some respected leader, an anointed man or woman of God and offers to offer to pray to receive more of the Spirit, why would you not go up? I can't promise you that anything big will happen when you get confirmed, but you can go to receive confirmation with the same attitude that our Bishop Todd goes to receive communion. And this is what he tells us, that when he goes to receive communion, he says, Lord, whatever this means, Whatever you intended for me in the giving of your body and blood, I open myself to it. Whatever this means, I, I want you to do whatever you want through this in me. 
As we bring the sermon to a close, I hope this teaching on confirmation has been helpful for you. Hopefully, you're at least in a better place to know if you are interested in signing up for a confirmation class. But as we close, I want to zoom out for a minute, and so feel free to leave the specific question of confirmation behind, and I want to ask some more general questions. Yes, you already belong here. Do you sense God has a deeper level of belonging for you? Remember, we talked about the friends that come over, but there could be another step of moving in. How is God calling you to belong? What would the next steps look like? And then the other question is this. Do you desire more of God? More of his spirit? More love and more power for ministry and for witness in the world? Do you want more? Amen.